If you'd open your Bibles to the book of Jude, the second to last book, so uh, if you'll turn to the back there, if you're at Revelation, just back one book. Uh, it's a small little letter tucked away there. But if you'll turn to Jude with me, we'll, uh, we'll read this little le- our portion of this little letter together, and then we'll pray for the preaching of God's Word. Book of Jude, let's begin in verse 17. But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you, in the last time there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lust. These are the ones who cause divisions worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life, and have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. And on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling, and to make you stand in the presence of His, whole, excuse me, of His glory, blameless with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now, and forever. Amen. Well, may God add His blessing to the reading of His Word. Let's pray now before we dive into the text together. Father, we ask for Your help. We ask that You would open our eyes that we may see wonderful things in Your Word. And Father, we pray that Your Gospel come today, not only in Word, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me begin today's sermon with a confession. Let me begin by confessing a shameful reality that I'm not the kind of man of prayer that I ought to be. My life has certainly not been marked. I don't think anybody who really knows me or really knew me would say that he is indeed a man of prayer. Therefore, preaching a sermon on the subject of praying in the Holy Spirit, from my vantage point, could not have fallen on a more unqualified person. But I was thankful for Derek's prayer earlier in the service when he said that the preaching would be based on the authority of God's Word, not a man. I do feel that as a brother in Christ, 
that I wish my confession didn't have to be made. And I pray that this week's preparation for today's sermon would be an Ebenezer for me. And I pray that today's sermon would be that for you. Jude, one of the half-brothers of Jesus, wrote this letter to encourage the church to contend for the faith. Which is our aim this morning. Our aim is this. We must contend for the faith by one, keeping ourselves in the love of God. Two, having mercy on the weak. And three, saving others with the gospel. Alright, listen to it again. Our aim is this, that we would contend for the faith by keeping ourselves in the love of God. Two, having mercy on the weak. And three, saving others with the gospel. The reason for such concern on Jude's part was the presence in the church of corrupt teachers, identifiable primarily by two distinct marks. So Jude writes this letter to the church to encourage them, to call them to contend for their faith because in their presence were corrupt teachers who were marked by the abuse of God's grace in order to justify sin. So they were calling upon the grace of God in order that they may have a license to sin. And the second thing that they were doing, and those go hand in hand, they were denying the lordship of Jesus in their life. So somehow, deceitfully sneaking among the saints were these corrupt teachers who were justifying sin, abusing God's grace, and denying the Lordship of Jesus. This concern must have been of great urgence on Jude's part. Because his original plans, he states, was to write a longer letter on a different subject. He wanted to write to them about their common salvation. Yet, here he is writing this tiny little letter because he learns of this serious threat among the saints. And he has to address it immediately. The saints were to contend for their faith against an ungodly enemy. These enemies were, according to the text, ungodly people committing ungodly deeds in ungodly ways. And God's judgment, according to Jude, has been reserved for such ones on the great day of the Lord. To warn the saints of such people, Jude uses familiar stories as examples from Israel's history. Examples that would emphasize the rebellion of people against God. Examples that would show the rejection of God's chosen instruments. And examples that would display the immorality of rebellious people. Jude even mentions three men who were woeful examples of this. Cain... Not only did he murder his brother in rebellion against God, but he built a city where violence reigned. Balaam, after a failed attempt to curse Israel, ultimately uses idolatry to lead God's people away from him. And then Korah, who led others in a rebellion against God's chosen instrument, Moses, 
that was a disaster not only for Korah, but all those who joined with him. These men were all deceitful. They were cunning and selfish. And their evil deeds proved to be fruitless, empty, and full of shame. The end result for all these men's lives and for those who followed with them was condemnation or, to be very particular, eternal judgment. So how does this little letter of warning of saints enter into the four-part series of prayer? Maybe that's the question that you're asking. Well, I'm glad you're asking. Because Jude says, beginning in verse 17, But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. That they were saying to you. So he's reminding them of what the apostle said. The apostle said, In the last time there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lust. The apostles themselves warned against such men that are referred to by Jude as mockers. That word mockers means that They're not just men who missed the point. This is not just a mistaken error. They weren't just fooled themselves, but they were intentionally corrupt. They were intending that their efforts would lead people astray from God. That's the kind of men who had infiltrated the church. The primary motive was their own ungodly lust. These men were motivated by their own lust. It's an awful thing when the lust of a man sets up in his heart and soul. It's an awful thing when our lust set up in our heart and soul. An awful thing when the lust of man drives his words and dictates his actions. The entire trajectory of a life of man who is driven by his lust is set on a path of evil and destruction that wreaks havoc on earth. And unfortunately, It pulls others with them in the process. And Jude is clear that there's a special place for such crooked individuals. That it's been reserved for them. That a judgment awaits such ones that is indescribably horrific. You don't want to be in this company. But oh saints, the danger is real. The danger is real. What Jude writes about in his little letter is easily applicable to to us today. The consequences are steep. The costs are great. The results of being caught up in this kind of turmoil is devastating. The repercussions are substantial. The effects are far-reaching. The ramifications are deadly. And the outcome is eternal. So Jude is warning the saints in every age to vigilantly be prepared for such perilous deception. It's a warning. Don't be deceived. People will come among you whose goal is corruption. And his single instruction for the saints at the beginning of this little letter is that they should contend for the faith. 
The reason Jude spent 16 verses warning the saints is so that he might contrast the character of those corrupt men with the actions of his saints. And we see that contrast beginning in verse 19. It says, these are the ones who cause divisions. He's speaking of those corrupt, deceitful men. They're worldly minded, devoid of the Spirit. But here's the contrast. But you... You saints, you saints of the Lord, beloved by God, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. The command in this text is to keep yourselves in the love of God. Do you see that tucked away right there in verse 21? It says, keep yourselves in love the love of God. The good news is, the command that we've been called to here in verses 20 and 21 has already been assured to us in Christ and for Christ. Look with me back at verse 1 of this little letter. We're being commanded in verse 20, excuse me, 21, to keep ourselves in the love of God. But look what verse 1 says, to those who are called, God calls us, beloved in God the Father. He loves us and kept us for Jesus Christ. What good news that He gives us a command to keep ourselves in the love of God when He's already promised us that Jesus Christ Himself will keep us because He loves us. Well, I don't know about you, but I delight when I find in God's Word that He's going to keep me when He gives me a command to keep Him. That's good news. According to verse 1, if we have been called into God's love through Christ, we are also kept in God's love for Christ Jesus. So how do you keep yourself in the love of God? By being kept in the love of God by Christ. The bottom line is, listen saints, God keeps us. He keeps you. He will not lose you. His grip on you is firm. Your salvation is certain. The promise is sure. It's been sealed. You're His. So how do we know then if we are being kept in the love of God? Well, accompanying that main verb, that command to keep ourselves in the love of God, are three present participles, meaning they describe the actions of one who keeps themselves in the love of God. There's three descriptive phrases of someone who keeps themselves in the love of God. According to the text, these three actions present, excuse me, present in saints who are keeping themselves in the love of God are this, building yourselves up on your most holy faith. That's going to be true of you. Number two, praying in the Holy Spirit. Number three, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. These are the actions of ones who are kept by God in Christ Jesus. And we want to tackle these three phrases this morning. These three present participles. Number one, it says, building yourselves up. Building yourselves up on your most Holy faith. 
So if we're going to keep ourselves in the love of God, then this will be true of us. The first active trait of a saint is that he will be continually building upon his faith. Well, that assumes at least one thing, that your faith has something to build on. You can't be built up unless there's a foundation. And we all know that the foundation of our faith is Jesus Christ. He's the cornerstone. Building, mentioned here in the text, is a present action, meaning that we should always be building. There's never a time of pause for growth in godliness. Our faith should ever be increasing. When we stop growing in faith, then what we're actually doing is backsliding. There's only two directions. You're either moving forward or you're moving backward. There's no such thing as a pause or a position of hold. We're either growing in faith or we're backsliding. Building yourselves up on your most holy faith. Well, the second present participle that we want to give our attention to is praying in the Holy Spirit. The second active trait of a saint is praying in the Holy Spirit. This will be true of us. Well, as I'm making that statement to you now, I'm thinking back to my week of preparation where I had to square, I had to do the math equation. If this is true, why does my life not reflect it? This is where we want to spend our time this morning. The way that we build ourselves up in our most holy faith is to continue in instant prayer. Praying in the Spirit is not unique to Jude. We also find this call elsewhere in Scripture. Ephesians chapter 6. Listen to Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. Ephesians chapter 6, he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord, in the strength of His might. That's verse 10. Put on the full armor of God, so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. He continues, Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Well, I want to make a few observations about the Ephesians 6 praying in the Spirit. Number one, 
This kind of praying gives us strength in the Lord. According to verse 10. It causes us to stand firm. It puts us in a spiritual mindset. We're not thinking flesh and blood, but we're thinking about powers and forces that dwell in the spiritual realm. It equips us for battle, not just for our own soul, but according to the text, for the souls of others. And it arms us with gospel boldness. If all that's true, if all that Paul writes about in Ephesians 6 is true, then why are we so little in this powerful position of praying in the Spirit? Why are we so little there? Well, kids, you got any children with us this morning? We saw them all up here. We have a bunch. Can I talk to you for a minute about prayer? I want you to help your dad and mom with prayer in the home. So I have have an assignment for you. How many of you like to put on costumes? You can raise your hand. How many of you kids like to put on costumes? Raise your hand. That's fun, isn't it? You get to pretend to be a character. Didn't Paul tell us in Ephesians 6 to put on the full armor of God? What do you think would happen if a soldier went to battle without his full armor? Can you imagine that? Kids, imagine for a second somebody going out to battle without any of their armor or without all of their armor on. Can you imagine running out on the front line to battle the enemy on the other side and then as you get there you're like, wait a minute, I forgot my shield and sword. How effective would you be as a soldier? Right? We wouldn't be very effective. Well, I've asked this morning that Jedediah, come help me for a second. I've asked Jedediah to come help me. Uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take the, uh, I'm gonna let you come up here, Jedid, so they can see you better. All right. Imagine that you don't have trying to fight a battle without all of the equipment. All right. So I've asked Jed to come help me this morning. I'm gonna put this Bible in my hand and I'm gonna ask Jed to try to take that from me. Was that pretty easy? That was pretty easy. He just slid it right off my hand. Right. That's what fighting without the armor of God is like. It's, it's like trying to hold on to a Bible that's just laying on top of your hand, right? But if I add His truth and that breastplate of righteousness, now I'm going to put two fingers on it, right? I'm going to put truth, my thumb, and my finger is going to represent another piece of armor. It, it's righteousness. Now pull it, Jed. Pull it away from me, all right? I don't want him to fall off, but he's totally pulling it from me, all right? He's taking it away from me. It's hard for me to hold on to that with two fingers, Right? But if I'll keep putting the armor on, gospel of peace, shield of faith, helmet of salvation, and that's five. Let me add the sixth one in. Let me add my other hand, right? The sword of the Spirit. Now I want Jed to take that Bible from me, all right? Pull hard, Jed. Pull real hard, all right? He's sliding to me. Can you pull it away from me? No, Jed can't take that from me, right? Because I put both hands into action. Thanks, Jed, buddy. You did a good job, all right? All right, kids, we talked about this armor that God has asked us to put on, right? Excuse me, this thing may fall apart when I'm moving it. If you know anything about this pulpit, I'll stay there. I added each of those pieces of armor, right? That my fingers represented. Truth, righteousness, gospel of peace, faith, salvation, and the Spirit. I did that because I wanted to show that as you put these pieces of armor on, 
There's strength. There's efficiency. There's power. Whereas if I'm just putting on a couple of pieces, then Jed was slowly pulling this out of my grip. Now, someone tell me which of the times it was hardest for him to take the Bible from me. When I had two hands on it. When I was fully equipped to hold on to it myself. That's because I had all my fingers working at the same time. Why would we go to battle unequipped? Why would we go to battle unequipped? So children, you have my permission to ask your parents every day this week to help you put on the full armor of God. And to remind them to put on the full armor of God. So every day this week, you say to your mom and dad, don't forget to put on the full armor of God and help me put mine on as well. Alright? It is no mistake that in Ephesians 6, right after God tells us to suit up with the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, He then commands us to pray in the Spirit. Do you see that? Did you see that in Ephesians chapter 6? Verse 17. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Take that. Then what's he say in the next verse? With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. Word of God, Holy Spirit. Word of God, Holy Spirit. Word of God, Holy Spirit. Praying in the Holy Spirit is praying God's Word with faith and fervency. There has been for a long time now, In God's kingdom, a marriage between the Holy Spirit and God's Word. They're inseparable. And we should live upon this reality. Praying in the Holy Spirit is praying according to God's Word. But praying in the Holy Spirit is also praying with, listen to this, humble expectancy. Micah 7, 7 says, but as for me... I watch expectantly for the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. My God will hear me. I don't know if you've ever heard of a little book called Expectation Corners. It's a small book, but it tells of a king who prepared a city for some of his poor subjects. And not far from where they this kingdom was built for them, there were these large storehouses where everything that they could ever need was supplied for them. All they had to do was to send their request to the king and he could go to these storehouses, gather what they needed and have it sent to them. But there was one condition. They should be on the lookout for whatever they had asked for so that when the king's messengers came with the answer to their petitions, they should always be found waiting and ready to receive them. And the sad story is told in this little book of one desponding person who never expected to get what he had asked because he was too unworthy. So one day he was taken to the king's storehouses and there, to his amazement, he saw with his address on them all the packages that had been made for him and sent. And there was a garment of praise and the oil of joy and the eye of salve and so much more that had been to his door but found it closed he was not on the lookout from that time on he learned the lesson of micah 7 7 that i will look to the lord i will wait for the god of my salvation 
my God will hear me. This is not only true in reference to the many varied requests that every believer has to make, but most especially to one great petition that we ought to make, that ought to be our chief prayer, that every heart should seek for, for itself. That's the life of God in the soul. That Christ may be fully formed within you. That we may be filled to all the fullness of God. This is what God has promised us. This is what God's people too little seek for. Very often because we don't believe that it's possible. Let's be honest. Like Psalm 51 that we quoted from when we made our confession this morning, like God, we're acquainted with our sin. Excuse me, like David, we're acquainted with our sin. God knows our sin. David knew his sin well. And we think God will never fill me to all His fullness. He'll never do that for me. But this is what we ought to seek and dare to expect because God is able and waiting to work in us. Praying in the Holy Spirit is praying, believing that God will hear and act. Praying in the Holy Spirit is praying in confidence that our God is able. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. 2 Corinthians 9.8 or Ephesians 3.20 and 21. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. To Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. The end of this little letter that we're looking at today says, Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand. Listen to the phrase here. In the presence of His glory, blameless with great joy. Saints. He's talking about us. He's talking about us. Do you believe that God wants to do that for you. That He has accomplished all that He says He is able to do on your behalf. Our prayers are most likely to prevail when we pray in the Holy Spirit because we are embracing God's guidance and influence over our own. Praying in the Spirit shifts our minds from the temporal to the eternal. And last week, Pastor Nathan instructed us from Acts chapter 4 to pray according to God's Word. Praying in the Spirit is praying in corporate unity. And when they heard this, Acts 4.24, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and they prayed. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken. And they were filled, all filled, with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the Word of God with boldness. They prayed in one accord. They remained together. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the Word of God with boldness. Oh dear God, help us. Help us. God, would You bring us to the end of ourselves? Our busyness. All our worldly distractions. 
our smug self-confidence. I don't think anybody in this room would say that they're not dependent on God. But our lives so little reflect someone who is truly, entirely dependent on Him. Let's be honest. We're weak. The church is weak. We may have rich theology, but I confess on my own part that that theology is barely applied. God, help us. May Your presence fall down on us this morning. Would You renew the fervor of the hearts of Your people towards You? Will You reorient our lives to truly reflect that You are an Almighty God? Would You shake this church like You did in Acts 4 and cause revival in the hearts of her saints? Grace Church, help me not to wane. Hold me accountable as Your brother to pray in the Holy Spirit of God. We must be people who pray in the Holy Spirit. Who depend on Him for our life. Listen, we can do all the things that we do. We can gather Sunday after Sunday. We can meet in our small groups. We can have fellowships outside of that. We can go through our Bible studies. We can meet with other Christians for lunch here and there. We can do a lot of things. But until God's Spirit has full reign in our hearts, our efforts, I'm, I'm thinking about text in Scripture where it says that we'll fill our bags up, but they're like purses with holes in it. You can put all that effort into it, but it's for naught if the Spirit doesn't have full reign. We're trying to give God a little room for the Spirit to work, but we're trying to hold on to all these other things, and it simply doesn't work like that. We need God's help. I'm not sure how to preach the rest of this text because I don't want to leave this subject of praying in the Holy Spirit that feels most vital. But there's a third present participle that is listed for us in the text. Not only praying in the Spirit, but also waiting for eternal life. He says in verse 20, But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. Here's the main verb. Keep yourselves in the love of God. And then he gives us the third participle waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. That third active trait of a saint is that they are eagerly looking forward to the day of the Lord. The day of Christ's return where you will know fully the extent of God's mercy to us in Christ Jesus. I don't know if you think about it, but so often it's the great day of the Lord is considered a day of judgment. But I don't look at it like that. It's a day of mercy. It's a day that we come face to face with the fullness of His mercy. Most notably, that there will be in that moment an invitation into His holy presence where we're not obliterated. But that we're welcomed and this holy God somehow responds to sinful man with such gentleness. The word anxiously here means eagerly. We eagerly await. 
I love the terminology used by Jude in the prepositional phrases there. He says, to eagerly wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. Mercy, Jesus, forever. What a great promise that we have. The assurance that we are being kept in the love of God leads us to keep ourselves in the love of God. Demonstrated by a steadfast growing in faith and an unceasing posture of praying in the Holy Spirit and an eager expectation of eternal life in Christ. The crazy thing is, Jude adds two more commands to keep yourself in the love of Christ in this text. The next one is that we would have mercy on the weak. He says in verse 22, and have mercy on some who are doubting. We ought to be our brother's keepers. We ought to have one another's back. We ought to love one another at the cost of our own life. That's who God's called us to be for one another. We're the opposite of Cain that's mentioned earlier in the text, who was an example not to follow, who would have been the exact opposite of what God's calling us to exemplify toward one another. We should faithfully and prudently watch over one another, extending God's mercy to one another. I do believe Jude mentions two ways to extend this mercy toward others. Not only does he say do it with compassion, to those who may be doubting, to treat others with tenderness. I think there's two ways that mercy can be displayed toward one another. One is in tenderness, the other one is in fear. Tenderness to restore those who are poor in spirit. A spirit of meekness. Not to be needlessly harsh or severe in our correction of them and their actions. Nor for us to be proud or haughty in our conduct towards one another perhaps some of you I know you have because Angie and I have spoken about it but um, I found myself listening to uh, Tim Kaine sermon who will be with us in just a few weeks on parenting and I shared it with Angie and a few other people and I know she's shared it around with some others but one of the things that Tim talked about in his parenting was the difference between punishment and my mind drew blank but um, basically do what? Discipline. Yeah. There's a difference between punishment and discipline. And too often in my own home, I hate to admit that punishment has been the order of the day rather than discipline. Discipline costs us. Discipline costs God. When God disciplines, it costs Him the life of His Son. But He loved us enough that He was willing to endure that pain to discipline us. And the same thing is true for us as parents. We ought to love our children enough to discipline them, not just punish them. Well, the same is true in how we interact with one another. We ought to love one another enough to go through pain to demonstrate mercy to one another the way that God's called us to. But there is a time for mercy with fear. It says in verse 23, Save others, snatching them out of the fire, and on, the, and on some have mercy with fear. There it is. Hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. It is a merciful thing to preach the truth to those around you. And it should be accompanied with love, but nonetheless, preach the truth, urging upon them 
the terrors of the Lord. I love the way Matthew Henry says it. He says, endeavor to frighten them out of their sins. Preach hell and damnation to them. He's not afraid to say it. Sometimes that's the order of the day. Sometimes that's the most merciful thing that we can do. But we must be wise here to accompany these truths when we talk about preaching them, preaching to them hell and damnation, to accompany those truths with the good news, the promise of salvation for those who repent. We must confront willful sin. And when we do so, it's a merciful thing that we do. But I would highly recommend or I would urge you when we demonstrate mercy with fear that we would do so with wisdom to distinguish between is this a weak, struggling, doubting brother or is this someone whose sin needs to be addressed? The last command that we see in the text that I'll conclude with is this. Not only has God called us to keep ourselves in the love of God, to have mercy on the weak, both in tenderness and with fear, but also to save others with the Gospel. To save others with the Gospel. Verse 23, save others, snatching them out of the fire. Well, like the other commands, we can only keep ourselves in the love of God because God keeps us in His love. And we can only have mercy on others because God's had mercy on us. So too, we can only save others because God promises to save people like us through His Gospel. We are only ambassadors of the King. We are messengers of the good news. We tell others of this love that we have come to know. We only point others to Jesus Christ. We only hold out to others His sinless life crucified on their behalf. We tell of His sacrifice of forgiveness. We explain His righteousness imputed to us. We exclaim the glory of His resurrection. And we should speak of the hope that we have through faith in Christ. And in doing so, we have the distinct privilege of being part of God saving others. Don't let bad application of your Reformed theology distract you from obeying God's command in Jude 23. That probably makes us uncomfortable a little when we hear the words commanded of us, save others. When we know that God is the one who saves. But I do believe it serves as a stark reality that there are literally people dangling over the fires of hell that are, by God's common grace, still walking on this earth. And with extreme urgency and full of vigor, we ought to be snatching them out of that fire. Well, I want to conclude this morning with an appeal to you to beseech the throne of God together now. Let's pray in the Holy Spirit. Let's pray in the Holy Spirit together now that God would snatch people out of the fire. These are not weak prayers. We must come to Him. That God would keep us in His great love. That God would light our souls up in prayer and that God would cause his mercy to abound among us we're going to take just a few minutes now no microphones are going to be passed around but as you feel led just stand where you are voice loudly 
a prayer, and then I've asked Rick to conclude that.